Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Now, this is a place where our extraordinary authors explore how they get inspired through a series of objects that they choose then bring with them into the studio. My name is Nihal Arthanaika. Today, I'm joined by the winner of the Booker Prize 2019. The winning novel, Girl, Woman, Other, was also picked by Barack Obama, of all people, as one of his top books of last year. It made many of the Book of the Year lists here and in the US, and the Sunday Times and The Guardian both called it a book of the decade. Girl, Woman, Other follows the lives and loves of 12 primarily black women across a century, and its author is here. Bernadine Evaristo, welcome. Hello, it's great to be here. What a list. I mean, Book of the Decade, Barack Obama, Booker Prize. (laughs) When you sit down to put fingers to keypad... Is any of this in your mind? Can it be? I, I'm very ambitious, so I want the best for my books, but that doesn't shape my writing at all. I want to stay true to the story I want to tell. So I have to sort of push all of those sort of ambitions out of my head and just get on with writing the story that I want to write. And the fact that this has happened to this book is incredible, right? Because it's my eighth book. But I really didn't think it was going to be this roller coaster ride. Do you have a healthy relationship with your inner critic when creating? Yeah. I mean, I've written eight books. Of course. So if it wasn't healthy... That, that doesn't make it any easier for some people. No, that's people true. People make albums and by the eighth album, they're still like tormenting themselves. No, I'm over not tormented. Right. I'm not tormented. I have to be inside the work and also looking at it from the outside as much as you can when you're creating it yourself. So I'm, I'm a very ruthless critic of my own work as I'm developing it. I rewrite pretty much every paragraph as I'm writing the book. Eventually I'll get to a first draft, but that doesn't mean to say that that every word almost has been reworked in that process. And then it will go through subsequent drafts. So, you know, my background was as a poet and I still pay a poet's attention to language Mm. as a novelist, but you're dealing with many more words, you know, a novel of 120,000 words rather than a short collection of poems of, I don't know, 10,000 words. So so I'm constantly crafting as I um, develop the book. Am I right in thinking that Girl, Woman, Other was five years in the creation? Yes, yes. I don't really know when I start a book, how long it's going to take. And I do many other things as well. Of course you do. And I, in a sense, that's my life and... I think that gives me the tension I need to go back to my work and to develop my work. If you were to give me five years only having to write a novel, I would probably spend four and a half years doing other things. You know, I like that tension. I think I have to accept that I like the tension between my creative work and, and developing a long work of fiction and all the other things I do that occupy my time. Some of it is how I earn my living as well. So, you know, I'm a professor of creative writing at Brunel University yes. London, so that also takes up um, some of my time. Of the 12 characters you created for this book, who came quickest and flowed most freely and who was the most difficult person to find the essence of? I would say that Yaz gave me the most fun as I was writing her, the 19-year-old who's, um, you know, comes from this essentially middle-class background and um, considers herself woke. And I found her very entertaining to write and the experience of writing her was very free-flowing. And then there's Megan who becomes Morgan, so my non-binary character. 
and they took a long time to write because I was so aware that this was a very sensitive subject that it was, as many of the characters are in a sense, completely beyond my experience, but that's what we do as writers. We write beyond our experience. I just wanted to write Megan Morgan with integrity while giving myself the freedom to be as creative as I wanted to with how I was telling their story. Was there any fear in approaching that particular story because of the Twitter pylons of of the age that we live in? I was aware that it was a risk, but I also feel that I'm completely entitled to write any story I want in whatever way I want. And if there are consequences to that, I will deal with them. (laughs) But I'm not going to be scared off. And I think that's perhaps the problem at the moment with... um, Cancel culture, as it's called. Oh, is it called cancel culture? I haven't heard of that. But, you know, people are afraid to step beyond their own kind of demographic in case they're going to be attacked for getting it wrong. And I would suggest that sometimes there is no right or wrong about it. If you're creating fictional characters, you know, you can create the kind of character that you want, you know. Obviously, if you're writing, you know, obviously Muslim Saudi Arabian woman, there are things you need to research, right? And if you get things wrong, maybe to do with the religion and stuff, then I I think that's valid. But actually, with the interior life of the character... You can you can play with it and have fun with it and, and do what you like. And I think I think we need to do that. The reason why there aren't enough white British writers writing multicultural fiction is because perhaps in the past they weren't interested in that, but even if they are interested in it, they're probably afraid of getting it wrong. And I think people need to just to take those risks if that's how they see them. Let's let's get on to your first object though. Um, which is the photo of yourself hmm. on the inside uh, flap of girl, woman, other. There's a picture of me um, from 1981, I think. Right. And I'm, okay. I'm wearing this old man's secondhand coat and my hair is almost shaved and I've got a really kind of strong, shall we say, look on my face. And that was exactly how I was then. I was at drama school, I was um, 21 and I was very strongly evolving into a feminist, very outspoken, a black feminist, because I was very aware that the sort of feminism had been co-opted by white women and we weren't really included. I don't um, think intersectionality even existed as a word. Did it? I mean, it didn't century. exist, no, no, it didn't. So that, that you know, young feminists today are very different and their approach to feminism is much more inclusive and I really like that. If you think about Woman's Hour, I think it was last year, where they were talking about hair and how often you should wash your hair. And I was listening to it on the radio and then they started talking about black women's hair and that they they can't just talk about hair as some generic thing. Actually, hair is different according to which, you know, racial group you belong to. And I just thought, wow, this is this is progressive and I think this is happening on many levels. Mm. So that's why that photo to me means so much because it's about the countercultural 1980s black feminist artistic movement that I was a part of. And we were second generation women. We were mostly born in Britain, raised in Britain. We felt that we belonged to this culture, but society didn't include us. And we were fighting to be included through the arts. And Amma is the character and Dominique who represent that era that most people don't know about. 
because obviously it was before the internet. That photo says a lot, you know, and it's also, when I look at myself then, I'm very different now, a very different person. But actually, my kind of radical politics haven't changed. In many ways, Girl, Woman, Other is a radical book, you know, which is why it's so interesting that it won the Booker, because it's disrupting so many things. The kinds of characters I've created, so many women on the queer spectrum, non-binary figure. And then it's a fusion fiction, as I call it. You know, it's Mm. experimental in form. And this is the difference between 19, you know, say 1980 and 2020, that a book such as this can have this kind of impact and, and level of success. Yes, it does prove something that for many years, people such as yourself must have had to hear that, you know, people don't want to hear those stories. Absolutely. People are not interested in those stories. Yes. Write something a bit more mainstream. Yes, I was told that. Not by my publisher, no. but by others. Yes. You know, and even when I started writing Girl, Woman, Other in 2013, the Me Too movement hadn't happened and Black Lives Matter hadn't happened and those were two major shifts in our culture. And so I I didn't think I was writing into a moment. The feminist moment happened as I was writing it. But even winning the Booker Prize and being the first black woman to do so, there was an element of certain sections of the media still making you invisible. (laughs) You know, I think we all know what what you're talking about when some newsreader decided to call you the other author. I know. And that's extraordinary. did that hurt or did it um, just anger you or were you kind I was of outraged. water off a, Okay, it wasn't, I wasn't water off a It didn't boat. hurt me because I was and still am riding so high oh, on having sure. won the booker. Yeah. So it's like you can't, you can't yeah, hurt yeah. me really yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. But I was outraged because I thought I've just won this major prize yeah. and this very experienced broadcaster has completely erased me from it in that moment um, and people said to me um, oh well you know he just forgot and I said well yes he shouldn't have forgotten and maybe my name did, hadn't even registered with him right so what I really uh, appreciated about I tweeted it was that the number of people who were outraged on my behalf yeah they were and that's the power of social media right you can protest and it can there's a ripple effect and it just goes out there into the world so he had to apologize and and the BBC apologized but I guess it's a reminder of how much even with the progress that's made how much is still to be yes and where people's blind spots are Mm. you know and that's great because the character's There are multiple perspectives of each character coming from Mm. other people which show their own blind spots Mm. as well. Let's go on to your next object, Homegirls, a black feminist anthology from 1983. So you're still wearing bubble boots and dad coats at this stage. I had dreadlocks, spiky dreadlocks then. Oh, Oh, wow. Tell me why you included this as an object. So, you know, I'm being asked a lot at the moment to come up with these books that I'd like to promote. And this was the first Women of Colour anthology. And there were almost no books published in the UK by black British writers. You're talking about the 80s, early 80s. You know, you could count on one hand, literally. And so I looked to America for inspiration. And, you know, African-American women's literature was thriving. And this anthology was a mixture of essays and fiction and poetry by women who were probably a little bit older than myself. And I remember picking it up in a bookshop called Sister Right, which was um, the first women's bookshop in this country, which 
probably lasted for about 20 years. It was on Upper Street in Islington. It's in Go One Another. Um, and it was the only place where you could go to get books solely by women from all over the world. And I, I remember getting this book and just absolutely loving it because it was speaking to me in so many ways. Um, and, you know, for younger people, they're probably... Um, cannot imagine what it was like 40 years ago to be so isolated in terms of the cultural output in this country. And so I gained inspiration and strength and felt supported by this literature that was coming out of America and Homegirls kind of embodied it in a sense. Do you think it is important that you need to see it in order to be it? I think so. Because you didn't have it. I mean, we're talking about this but, but, but this, you'd be decided to be a writer before you saw this. No, no? I was you working hadn't. in theatre. At drama school, I was on what was called a community theatre arts course where they encouraged you to create your own theatre. So I began writing through writing for theatre because that was what, what was expected on the course. So then I began to develop my voice as a black British woman writer in theatre and then encountered Ntozaki Shange's work and was deeply influenced by it. So then in that respect, because your initial form for writing is about dialogue, then when you're writing fiction now, what excites you more? The, the construction of the sentence, the, how the words flow together, or the speech element of how people all come alive? Right. All of it. It's all for me, it's all completely integrated. Language is important. Voice is important. Girl, woman, other isn't written in the first person, but it feels like it. It's close third. Yeah. So you're inside every character's head. You know who they are. You know how they speak. You're deep in a way inside their subconscious, but you're also seeing them from the outside. Um, and then the, the form is experimental. So it's this very free flowing fusion fiction form. And for me, it's all together. I can't separate those components there's always a degree of okay, where's it going now? Mm. Not just not not just in the narrative, but just the form of it. Whereas, and it, I I'm I'm a huge hip hop fan, so okay. reading raps and how rappers get you onto that last word and then pull you onto the next word. Mm. You've almost got that. You probably mm. in another life would have made quite a good rapper. Do you I'm think thinking. so? I think you would have. Had, wow, that sounds interesting. You would have had bars, as they say. In bars. The rap. What's yeah, bars? Bars are lyrics. Okay. You got. You got. You got. You would have bars because <laughs> um, a, 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 a rap song is based on sixteen bar choruses. One, two, three, four is a bar. Oh. The count of the, of the okay. beat. One, okay. two, three, four is one bar, wow. and it's sixteen bars and eight bar choruses. Uh, anyway, there you go. You would have been a rapper in a, in another life. I hope. Which one of these 12 characters, or perhaps all of them, have left something of themselves within you? Because they come from you. But I've interviewed so many authors where they say that there's a point at which the characters take on a life of their own. Mm, and absolutely. then they end up controlling you in mm. some ways. Who have you perhaps, even, long after this was published and Booker Prize, etc., you woke up in the night thinking about what would they be doing now? None of them. <laughs> Wow, that's hardcore. <laughs> She's like, that's over. On to the next one. It really? Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, when a book's published, you're then... Like on to the next one. Well, no, not yet, actually. Ah, OK. But, you know, the, the, the road show begins. You're on the road show. You know, you're on the road and you're talking about it and yeah. relating to it in that way. But they don't really exist beyond what I've written. Ah, OK. I'm not obsessed by them. You know, my last book, Mr. Loverman, was about a 74-year-old gay Caribbean man and he was the protagonist. 
and his wife to a lesser extent. So he did take root within me because I spent a few years being him, essentially, and writing his story. Whereas I think with this, there are 12 of them. Right. And so I'm perhaps not so, um, what's the word, involved with them because there are so many of them. Right, okay. And I, I guess there are varying amounts of distance between you and them. Yes. In terms of yes. who you are, Amma being... Yes, Amma's the only one who's kind of right. loosely based on my younger self, but the others aren't. I mean, people do say to me, oh, yes, but they're all you. And I say, no, they're not. You know, there's this thing with writers, especially women writers, that people think you're always writing autobiography, yeah. even though one character is a 93-year-old Northumberland farmer <laughs> and another one is a 27-year-old non-binary woman living in Yorkshire. Yeah. Somehow it's all you and it's not. You know, I created them, but they have a life of their own and their lives are not my lives. You make the point there that that's often something said about women writers. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that is in some way saying that women don't have the imagination yeah, to is. be able to distance themselves in Absolutely. from the characters? Right. I, you know, um, I think if you were to ask a lot of women writers if they come across this, they will say yes. These are conversations that we have amongst ourselves. I think it's belittling, you know. Yeah, for sure. Somehow we don't have the imaginative capacity of men. Right. Hmm. Which is obviously rubbish. Yep. Um, But hey, these (laughs) things are still going on. Um, The 12 women are all linked to each other, uh, leading back to Amma, who has a play at the National Theatre. Now, there's a section of the book where Amma's daughter Yaz is sat in the audience as the play is about to begin. Let's hear that bit from the audio book now. The theatre is predominated by the usual greyheads, average age 100. Mum's friends and diehard fans are dotted all over. They should be grey, but they're more likely to shave it off, dye it or cover it up with head wraps. She looks over at Sylvester, slumped in his seat, scruffy as hell in his tatty blue communist China overalls. His beard makes him look more like an Amish farmer than an urban hipster. Way too old for it, Sylvie. His arms are crossed and he's scowling like he really wants to not enjoy the play before it's even begun. When he notices her ogling him, puts on a smiley face and waves, probably embarrassed that she's read his mind. She waves too, putting her nice-to-see-you face back on. He's one of her godfathers, but was demoted to the C-list when he sent her the same birthday card three years in a row. A cheap recycled charity one at that. As for birthday presents... He stopped them when she turned 16, as if she had no need for financial support once she could legally have sex. The A-list goddies part with money, lots of it, every year on her birthday. They're the best as they really want to keep in with her as their conduit to the younger generation. A couple of goddies have disappeared altogether on account of falling out with mum over some pointless melodrama. Mum says Sylvester should stop sniping at other people's success, hers, and that he won't change with the times. He's been left behind. You mean the way you felt not so long ago, Mum? Ever since she landed the national gig, she's got very snooty about struggling theatre mates, as if she alone has discovered the secret to being successful. As if she hasn't spent way too many years of her life watching crap television while waiting for the phone to ring. That was Girl, Woman, Other, written by my guest Bernadine Evaristo and read there by Anna Maria Nabirie. The audiobook is available to buy now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Also, whilst we're here, do remember to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss our free fortnightly episodes. And 
You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. You are 100% visible <laughs> and successful. And Barack Obama. I Let's know. talk about Barack Obama. Barack Obama. <laughs> Knows you exist. Not only that, has read it and loved it. Every time anyone mentions this, I imagine him sitting in bed, his beautiful bed in his beautiful bedroom, wherever he lives in Washington or Chicago, next to his incredible wife who's trying to sleep. And he's wearing his really (laughs) stush gym jams. Yeah, with POTUS stitches. Yes, and he's turning the page and reading the book. And it just fills me with total delight. (laughs) I wonder if he found out about it. I wonder if his daughters I don't suggested know. to him. I don't know how he got hold of it. Uh, I, I kind of think, oh, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle must have said, you know, you've got to read this, Barack. But I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it was so exciting. It was almost as good as winning the booker. Because <laughs> I was getting these texts at 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, who is texting me? And I'd gone to bed, I think. And I thought, why are people texting me? And then I looked and they said, Barack Obama's chosen you, one of the top 19 books of 2019. I was like, what? <laughs> How did this happen? And does it have an immediate effect in I terms of American profile? Yeah, that's what I yeah. mean. Yeah, did it I, I think it must have done in the States. I'm sure that would have had an impact. Have you been asked, which is a question a white author I presume would never be asked, is what would white people find relatable within this book? I haven't been been asked that, but this is very interesting because this book is being read across the board by white people and brown people. Asian men. And men and women and older people people and younger people. It really is. And, you know, because I am quite active on social media, I come across readers because they're always posting about the book and I'm doing events all over the place and I see who's in the audience. And winning the booker meant that the barrier to reading this book that might have existed with certain demographics has dissolved. And they are reading the book and they're telling me that they do relate to it in lots of different ways. And I just think that's the beauty of of literature. Do you know what I mean? That we reach across all these perceived barriers. But with me as a, as a writer, that happened with winning the booker. And I think it probably could only happen with winning the booker because it is such a prestigious prize that people are probably saying to themselves, well, I wouldn't pick this up, but let me give it a go. And they're reading it and finding that there's stuff in there for them. Do you think the gatekeepers who would previously, when you were a younger writer, have suggested that these are stories that do not have universal appeal, mm. do you think they have gone? I think we've had a lot of tokenism in this country. So, you know, a few people have been allowed to succeed and and then that's been enough for the industry. And now the industry is realising, the publishing industry, that there are many more stories out there to be told in, in all kinds of forms. There's a lot of non-fiction out there from writers of colour at the moment, for example, which is unprecedented in this country because we haven't been writing those books of essays or um, books about society and culture and so on from our perspective. Mm. And that is now happening. Um, and it's a huge untapped resource for the industry and for readers. Mm. And it's proliferating at the moment and it's incredible. We're about multiplicity. We're about plurality. The days of tokenism, I think, are behind us. Yes. And I, I'm really enjoying that. Were you aware as you wrote that 
there is a universality? Must there always be a universality or should there just always always be a truth? I think there's always a universality if you're talking about human behaviour, human psychology, because so much of that is shared, whoever you are, wherever you come from. Emotions are emotions, right? Struggles are struggles. Um, people have dreams and aspirations and they have those they are thwarted and then there's some kind of resolution at the end. So these are just basic human experiences. And um, that's what I knew I was writing. And that's what I've always been writing, actually. Let's go on to some music because your next object is a song, My Shot from Hamilton, the musical. Why this song? I heard it first quite a few years ago when Bill Gates was being interviewed on Desert Island Discs and it just struck me like a thunderbolt. I thought, oh my God, this is an incredible song because it was really about somebody saying they're not giving up. They're going to, they're just going to go for it. They're going to grab every opportunity that comes their way. And I looked it up and discovered this musical called Hamilton, uh, which was a success in America. And I got the CD and started playing the album um, and did for about two years before it came to the UK. And that song was such a galvanising inspiration for me because that's how I felt about my career, that I'd been, you know, in the arts for, at that stage, you know, um, 30-something years. I'd never broken through in a big way. And the song just encapsulated that. I'm young, scrappy and hungry. And I'm not young and I'm not scrappy, but I still had that hunger, that hunger to break through, to reach a wider audience, to be counted, to not feel so peripheralised. Even today when I listen to that song, it just fires me up. Now, since winning the Booker, I feel like I didn't give up and I did get actually the big prize. And my work is, is now doing all the things that I wanted it to do. Did you discover your worth from within? Or did it have to come externally no, for other people to Oh, but I guess it's always a bit of both. But I have a very strong inner self and a self-belief. And my feeling was not that I wasn't good enough, but why wasn't I getting the big breaks? Why not me? Because I felt I was worth it, seriously. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I developed over many years, that, that's, that self-confidence and self-belief that I, I had... I was a writer and I was doing something nobody else was doing, you know, because my work is very innovative and and tackling subjects that other people weren't tackling, you know, getting actually getting really good reviews for my work and occasionally picking up smaller prizes, but never breaking through into the sort of so-called mainstream, as in like reaching a large readership or being known beyond small circles, small literary circles. So... So all of that supported me as a writer and, you know, I found it very nourishing. But I also just had that inner core, which I've had all my life, of feeling that, um, you know, that I'm important. The last object I have is a photo of your paternal grandmother. Extraordinary photo. Tell me why she was important. My father came from Nigeria and his father died before he was born. He was a twin, my father, and he uh, was raised by his mother. And then he left for England in 1949, Uh, didn't tell her he was going. 
because he knew that she would stop him. His twin sister had died at this point and married my mother, white English woman, um, in the 50s, had eight children in 10 years. Um, and so my a revolutionary act in the 1950s to have a mixed... Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of opposition from my mother's oh, side okay. of the family, but my mother was determined she was going to marry my father. She loved him. And then they went and had all these children, which my mother's side of the family really disapproved of. And my mother started writing to my grandmother um, because my father wasn't communicating with her. And um, my grandmother couldn't write, but she would um, send letters via a scribe. And then... She died in 1967 and my father couldn't afford to go back. And also in those days, if you didn't go back to, you know, the country you came from, a successful rich person, there was a lot of shame attached to that. And my father was a welder and he had lots of kids and he had no money. So anyway, he never went back when she died. And then the contact with his side of the family was broken for over 20 years. And then I started writing to a relative there and then it was resumed. But my grandmother came alive for me through this photograph, which was the only photograph of her that we had. I just think it's so beautiful. And she has been, in a way, my muse. I've kind of mythologised her, I'd say, as this grandmother I never knew, obviously a black woman, who lived a, a long and rich but also slightly tragic life and never got to know her grandchildren, her eight grandchildren, never met us, never held us, never talked to us. And then about 10 years ago, I came across a photograph of her at the end of her life. So this photograph is of her, obviously, as a very young woman. She was probably in her 20s. Maybe it was when she got married. Um, it's heavily stylized, isn't that, it? That's um, my my nephew is an artist, right? And he made a silk screen of oh, it. That's amazing. And he created this beautiful artwork of it. So that's why it's it is as it is. But from her, the accessories she's wearing yeah, to the true. fan that she's holding, yeah. just her herself. There's something. Yeah. And she's so dignified. Indeed. And just lovely. Um, so I found this photograph of her at the end of her life, and she looked completely different. And it really disrupted this... Um, Mythology. Oh, God, yes. Because yeah. she was drawn and you could see her. she had rotten teeth and she just looked like somebody who'd lived a really hard life. And that was really shocking because that's not the picture that I'd, you know, that I kind of had worshipped for most of my life. Every book I write is for her and for her the life she led and honouring her as my as my grandmother, as my predecessor. So, yeah, so that's why I chose it. I guess that is what invisibility looks like when you can't, mm. you can't leave your mark on the world. And you, Bernadine, have most certainly left your mark on I the world. So I have. will continue <laughs> to do so, continue to do so, which I guess lastly leads me on to... Say, what's next? You know, what's next after you know that Barack Obama is there in bed in his PJs reading your book and you win the Booker Prize, the first black woman to win the Booker Prize, an extraordinary achievement in itself. What's next? Well, this year I don't have time to, to start a, you know, a long work of fiction. Next year I will get into something and I've, I have lots of ideas percolating and I'm trying just to 
um, maintain the attitude and kind of approach that I always have to my work, which is to write the book I want to write and to not be thinking about trying to match Girl, Woman, Other or reproduce some version of Girl, Woman, Other, but just to explore and experiment and come up with a, a new book um, which will take as long as it takes and it will land where it lands. Bernadine, thank you so much. <laughs> that was great. Young Hiram was born on a slave plantation. When his mother was sold, all Hiram's memories were lost, but he gained a mysterious new power. In this emotional story of trauma through the generations, race in America and the history of slavery, ta Coates has given us a beautiful novel that exposes the horrors and legacy of racism. There is no sensation like drowning because the feeling is not merely agony but a bewilderment at so alien a circumstance. The mind believes that there should be air since there is always air to be had. And the urge to breathe is such a matter of instinct that it requires a kind of focus to belay the order. Had I leapt from the bridge myself, I could have accounted for my new situation. Had I even fallen over the side, I would have understood, if only because this would have been imaginable. The audiobook edition of The Water Dancer is available to download now. <laughs>